The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Whole Health Cure, a podcast exploring the science behind true health and living a physically, emotionally, and spiritually fulfilled life. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. Today, we're talking about public health and preventive medicine. I'm joined by Dr. Matthew McKenna. Dr. McKenna is a professor in Emory School of Medicine in the Department of of Family Medicine and Preventive Medicine, um, and he's the director of the Division of Preventive Medicine. Uh, from 1989 to 2000, he worked for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and before joining the Emory faculty, he was the medical director of the Fulton County Department of Health and Wellness from 2010 to 2015. Most of his prevention work has involved the demographic and social determinants of health. He continues to provide medical services to patients in the Emory Family Medicine Clinic, and he's committed to engaging a full spectrum of healthcare providers in the learning and practice of healthcare prevention, lifestyle change, and population health. He also continues to serve on the editorial and advisory boards for a variety of public health organizations and publications. Dr. McKenna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And so let me start at the 50,000-foot level with kind of the vital signs in the health of our country and then kind of ask you to drill down um, to what prevention means not just for public health but for each of us as individuals. Um, So specifically, I want to draw on your experience um, to share with our listeners what we can do today to live healthier lives. So it's no secret that as a country, as a nation, we spend more per capita on health care, yet we, amongst the um, higher income countries, have one of the uh, worst statistics in chronic disease. How do you think we got here? Well, I, I think every country is a little different, but in the United States, we have a very strong sort of individual perspective about how people are supposed to live their lives with individual liberty being um, a centerpiece of that. Um, the thing about health, though, we, we know more and more is that's shaped a great deal by the environment and the social uh, situation in which people live. So the th- place we're at right now in the United States, if you look at it in comparison to other countries, we spend more on health care by 50 to 80 percent than the next closest country to us, and yet we have one of the poor set of outcomes in terms of life expectancy. But I think one of the things, if you look at it, how other countries spend their money on social um, supports in general, they spend about the same amount as we do. We just happen to spend it all in health care rather than in housing, nutritional support, um, things that shape preschool children's health and lives. And what you're doing is for that sort of deficit in support, you're playing catch up in the health care arena. And we see that actually some places are beginning to understand that just as an example in New York State they're actually figuring out that for people who are homeless and have major illnesses and keep winding up in the emergency room because their medicines are stolen and they don't have any way to protect themselves out in the elements, that it's a lot cheaper to just go pay rent for them to live in an apartment out of the Medicaid dollars than it is for them to have recurrent, very expensive admissions to the hospital. 
So, you know, stepping back and, and thinking about health then more than just what doctors do in their office and thinking about it in terms of the 99.9% of the time people live their lives, which is outside of the doctor's office, there's a lot that needs and can be done to build that space up where people live, work, and play that will, I think, give payoffs in the health arena if we really start to address them. That is such an insightful perspective, you know, looking, first of all, at expenditure, not just in healthcare dollars, right. but the investment in social economic support to people. Um, is, is That's actually a unique perspective. It really touches at the core of prevention because I think we do filter a lot of social and economic problems through our healthcare system in this country. Like you said, people not affording their medications or having some stressors, uh, you know, financial, familial, et cetera, that their outlet becomes healthcare because they land here when there's a breakdown every step of the way, um, environmentally, socially. Um, and, and that's such a really insightful way to to view why we are where we are, then that begs the question, well, what do we do about it? You know, clearly our current way of approaching the the solutions, if you will, aren't working because we're getting people at that end stage and we're obviously um, investing a lot of resources and finances to try and get people well. How can we intervene better or differently at an earlier stage? Well, that's a really good question. I I think if you try to approach any of these questions or subjects in a really holistic um, way, it actually becomes too big and too overwhelming for people. Uh, I worked with a public health nurse once that said, you know, the best approach to things is instead of trying to make this heaven on earth, we need to take away the little bits of hell. So the, 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 the places we've seen social movements around health and changes really made are at the community level, sort of grassroots kinds of, of level around things. I mean, I think the best example of that has been in terms of something that's had an immense impact on, po- on population health is what happened with tobacco use in the 20th century in this country that went from... Um, being a ubiquitous behavior that everybody engaged in almost. I mean, at one point, about 60 to 80 percent of men were smoking in the United States to something where now people who smoke are almost looked at as worse than cocaine addicts. Right, right. Yeah, they get their corner. (laughs) (laughs) And that all started with, you know, individuals in small communities making movements and, and uh, making a difference. And um, just as an example, many people aren't aware that for f- research into understanding the impacts of health impacts of secondhand smoke, much of that was funded by the um, air steward uh, union. They developed a foundation. So the people working in airplanes who were trapped in these tubes with smokers were one of the ones who actually started to fund much of the research. That helped us understand how harmful secondhand smoke was, and that became a major wedge issue to changing environments that actually um, are supportive of getting people who are having a very difficult time from quitting smoking to quit. 
so it benefits the smoker by getting them to quit, and it benefits everyone around them because the smoker isn't there either because they've been banned from being there or they've stopped smoking. So it's those kind of approaches that you see um, really working in terms of making healthy communities. And, and, and so it starts with the uh, community garden. So in, in areas that may be food deserts where there's not good um, availability of fresh fruits and produce and that kind of quality food, where communities come together, they identify a plot of land, and all of a sudden you see a community garden start being built and, and supported. Um, it starts with uh, communities coming together and saying, you know, we keep getting our bicyclists run over, people who want to use an alternative, healthier form of transportation. Can we at least get some bike lanes painted in our community to maybe open up and enable people to um, have an option that, for another form of um, transportation. Um, even more mundane, maybe, is many communities don't have sidewalks or passable sidewalks. And, you know, having people come together and find a common um, purpose about improving the sidewalks in their community. And, and in doing that and sort of organizing around those activities, I think people uh, be, you build out from that. And those, those have been the movements and the ways to accomplish those things that have been, you know, the most successful. Uh, I think, you know, we are aware that trying to bite this off, not only is it overwhelming conceptually, but America at the national level has become so polarized and everything is so difficult that um, starting at the, you know, at the local corner has is, is, is been the way that m most communities are actually able to make things happen. And I, I know I saw that you know, when I was working at CDC in Fulton County, we were able to transform some local communities, Pittsburgh area, Pittsburgh, other pl of, of, uh, of Atlanta, things like that, where we were able to get working with corner store um, uh, people and owners to improve just what the options were available in their stores were, were the kind of things where you then get people working more and more on these types of issues. Yeah, I think your example about tobacco is such a great reminder of the impact that we each as individuals have. I think one of the struggles that every person has is what I do really won't make a difference or, you know, how many people need to do different things in different mm -hmm. communities to reach a tipping point where we change the cultural norms and most people don't feel empowered that what they do is gonna you know potentially lead to a larger you know better outcome and the tobacco example is such a great reminder of how much of a pendulum swing can happen if enough people do it. I think that's such a great and empowering reminder. So when we're each wondering <laughs> what can we do, knowing that we're each kind of little pieces of that puzzle that take us in a direction that can not only change our own health, but everyone else's health, that, that's a great reminder. Talking about what each individual can do, so we we can't fix the country. We're polarized, <laughs> <laughs> and it's overwhelming even right. for people in public health, let alone people who are not in healthcare. Um, and yes, we can each do things for our community, but what can we each do for ourselves? So, as a practicing clinician, mm -hmm. you know, how do you help your patients? 
Well, I try to keep it really simple. Um, I think the emerging evidence is overwhelming that uh, physical activity and nutrition and stress or mindfulness are creating 80% of the health problems that people are experiencing, you know, not being able to engage in those behaviors successfully or in a, a useful way. And you have a very limited time with your patients, and they're getting inundated with all kinds of information from different directions. The, the amount of interest in health topics is infinite, and it seems like the supply of information it's is even larger. <laughs> and people are, 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 my experience is many people are just confused. Yeah. Uh, and there really are some very simple guidances, and I think that's been one of the successes over the last 15 or 20 years in this area around public health is to make people sit down, sort of make the experts stop arguing with each other and come up with some common messages that we can uh, give to folks. So, um, you know, real simple ways I try to put things are like exercise. I say if I could put the benefits of physical activity or exercise in a pill, I would never need to work again. So going for a walk 30 minutes a day is probably the most important thing you can do um, over and above any of the medications we're about to go through and really begin to get people to think about um, those behaviors as a type of therapy as opposed to the first thing being um, what they're going to get from the pharmacist. Um, Messaging around nutrition, you know, the way I put it simply is if God makes it, it's good. If man makes it, it's bad. It's, uh, the, you know, the more steps there are between the farm and your mouth, the worse it is. And to really get people to focus on thinking about food as food, uh, it's something I not only do with patients but with even students and trainees in the medical profession is once you start talking to people about food as a bundle of nutrients rather than as a strawberry or a Chick-fil-A sandwich, um, you've lost them. And trying to um, help people understand that whole foods, foods that have not have been taken apart and reconstructed, that you find on the outside of the grocery store, uh, you know, where the fresh produce and the dairy and those things are, um, is the best way to eat. And okay, let's start having a discussion about what are the things you like out there and let's keep you out of the middle of the store where all the things in boxes and bags uh, are located that are actually fairly harmful for you. Um, you know, th that kind of messaging and discussion is where I have a few minutes and w where I think um, people get the most benefit in understanding where they can at least start in getting control of things that have such a strong impact on their health. And and I love how you take, you know, sometimes messages like diet and exercise are so general and mm -hmm. so common that they don't get the, I guess, respect that they right. deserve, yet drilling down into the complexity behind how and why each one works is incredibly complex. Like you said, you know, exercise affects 40 disease conditions. No pill can help right. 40 disease conditions. So the complexity in a biochemical way is just so rich, whereas the message sometimes gets watered down in a very oversimplified way. So I, I think that that is really interesting to kind of get real into that a little bit of the why mm. and the how. Um, and 
when you talk to your patients, do you feel that that they walk away and come back three months later or six months later and um, that message gets carried out? Or, or do you feel that there are other tricks or tips that people can do to change their behavior? Well, I mean, the, the, the most probably fruitful way in, in, in that kind of encounter is to try to identify something specific. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there are a number of programs that do this, and the, the terminology we use in, in the lifestyle clinic we have is uh, they have a lifestyle prescription where you have the person very specifically identify something that they can do, a single thing they can do, like um, maybe cook their two or three of their lunches on Sunday afternoon so that they take that lunch to them with work so that they're not going to the fast food store uh, or the fast food outlet uh, later in the week. So, you know, something very specific like that. And then when they come back a month later to see where they're at and, and hold them accountable for that. I think um, in the in the purely clinical setting, trying to focus on something like that is, is the most fruitful way to get with people is to say, you know, what are the, what are the, what are, what is something we can do here? What can we pick out of this out of this um, board? Can we get you to go for a walk? Okay, you can't walk thirty minutes a day. Can we get to ten minutes a day? Can we get you doing something? Uh, it, I think, you know, the way healthcare is delivered, that that's where the the challenge comes in because, uh, you know, there is so many to be honest, so many counter forces against being able to do that with in a successful way with people because we know that one of the most important things is how frequently you actually touch people in reinforcing those messages and holding them accountable. And yet every time they come back to see you, there's usually a copay associated with seeing the doctor for that. So, um, you know, at least I think the most important thing we can do as clinicians is, you know, there's this whole idea of stages at which people are ready to change and you're just trying to move them along that continuum maybe they've never heard of thought about ever engaged in any kind of regular leisure physical activity in their life and you're just trying to help them understand how important that would be for dealing with the issue that they came in to see you about um who knows, that might prompt them to go do something else or at least investigate doing something better. If it's somebody who's genuinely interested, giving them the specific parameters around what they can do and saying, what can, what will you do over the next month or till we see you again um, is, is the way to go. That's the, that's, that from, you know, as a, as a simple lowly doctor, that's the only hope I think we have is in our time is to think about how can I move this person from where they're at now to something more specific they can be potentially in the future. Um, Again, going back to the tobacco example, um, take 100 smokers. At the end of the year, five of them will quit smoking on their own. Um, If a doctor gives them a simple message of the most important thing you could do is to quit smoking, uh, about seven or eight of them will quit smoking. If you go... The most important thing you do is quit smoking, and I can give you some medication that will help you with that. About between 10 and 15 of them will quit smoking. You then tripled the, the quit smoking rate with some very simple interventions. 
but you still fail 85% of the time. <laughs> it's similar with these other behaviors. There, you don't, you don't miraculously take care of them like you cure a strep throat. But it's about the little battle at each place to try to move people along that continuum and get them to change um, is, you know, has the potential to make a real difference. Yeah, I think one of the key points that I'll just reiterate yeah. that I see a lot in my practice is I think when people try to do too much too quickly, it usually doesn't lead to sustained change. You know, if people decide to exercise, you know, it's January 1st, everyone's New Year's resolution is go to the gym, and they go seven days a week for two weeks and realize that they can't continue mm-hmm. at that pace. Um, you know, I think they have, people have responsibilities outside of just self-care. Um, and breaking things down into just specifically committing to one or two small things, making that, you know, habit and building is so powerful. I think that the power of those small changes gets underestimated. And, and I love that lifestyle prescription because it does really highlight how much of a difference one or two small commitments can make in, in kind of shifting you in a direction that's health-promoting. You mentioned your lifestyle clinic, and I'm wondering if for our listeners you can talk more about the design because this is a really innovative way to deliver health care, and I think for a lot of people that are frustrated by the copay, go to the doctor, quick visit, hear your medications. This is such a uniquely different way to really get at the core of prevention and, and changing the the disease process, not just treating the numbers. Um, can you talk more about how you structure the clinic and um, how many years you've been doing it, how it got started? Yeah, the, the clinic got started at our regular uh, clinical care delivery facility about four or five years ago. We had one of the um, preventive medicine people who was also family medicine trained, you know, much like myself, who was uh, you know, tremendously committed to this. And the way, they, the, way the clinic is structured is as a, what's called a shared medical appointment. And the framework for that is the appreciation of when you're trying to uh, engage in something where people are going to change their behaviors, m- many times the best information comes from people just like them who are struggling with the same things. So the structure is you, in about a two-hour period, you bring people in. You have a short presentation by usually one of our physicians or other health coaches that are there about a topic, nutrition, physical activity, uh, stress management. And the patients are actually there for a visit with the doctor, but they're there with six to eight other people. And as you work through these topics, um, people are having an opportunity to provide input and problems are sort of introduced and the solutions are given by their peers and other people in the shared medical appointment, not the doctor being the you know all-knowing person. If that goes on for about an hour and then after that the um, patients then have uh, encounters with individual clinicians who are there. We usually have a variety of residents or other clinicians, and they have a real brief encounter with one of those clinicians, go over any sort of medical um, prescriptions they need to have updated, any 
health maintenance things they need to have done, and then um, they're they're discharged the way they would in any other visit. So uh, the other thing that happens as part of that that encounter is you get down to the nitty gritty of the real hardcore lifestyle prescription, that thing we talked about earlier, the real specific thing people are going to need to do for the next month to try to help their behavior. And, um, you know, that that really does, the feedback we get from people is it really is an eye-opener for them and so much more powerful to have that group kind of experience. You know, we're doing this kind of just for the, this specific clinic, but there are practitioners throughout the country who actually structure their whole practice this way. They have sessions of group medical appointments where um, patients come in as a group and um, they find it in many ways much more efficient to get many things done, particularly around basic health maintenance and prevention messaging than that, you know, that, that assembly line you talked about earlier where they're coming in for, with their co-pays for a few moments. Do you find that some patients have such individualized concerns that they need to have more of that personal time, or does this model, does it generally pretty well receive where most people's needs are met? Yeah, there are people like that, and you have to, that that can begin to um, potentially overwhelm the system. Um, We've struggled with that some, Uh, but, you know, like anything else, you you make sure that your expectations are managed, (laughs) and people are given very clear um, messaging up front about what it is we're doing, when you get an opportunity to have an encounter with the individual clinician, and what the boundaries are around that discussion. And, you know, we happen to have the advantage where our patients are being referred to us from other practitioners in the clinic. So when it begins to get outside those boundaries, we make it clear that, well, this is something you need to discuss with your individual clinician at a regular visit. So, so, you know, it's, it's a fairly easy kind of dynamic to deal with. The other thing, though, about, about what you're raising that we have found very interesting is, again, you never really know what sorts of benefit people are going to get out of things. So just as an example, we had one patient who clearly had some emotional issues and um, acted out in some ways that we found a bit challenging. And they actually came for a number of sessions and... Um, kind of kept stopped coming and I checked up on them and this person went forward and lost like 35 pounds and reversed their diabetes and so even though it didn't seem like they were a good fit for the clinic there was something they were getting value out of coming back and obviously were able to take that forward and make changes in their life that were beneficial so you know it's you you don't want to be too strict about how you draw those boundaries because again you don't always know what kind of benefit people are going to get out of this yeah i imagine i mean people are obviously very different you've got your introverts your extroverts the willingness people may have to contribute to a group discussion um may be very different individual i mean you see that on facebook some people you you know everything about their life and, and others are a little bit kind of keep things to their chest. So I imagine the dynamics in those sessions are very And that's similar. why following good group process dynamics are important. I mean, we try to pay attention to that. We certainly, we don't have 20 people in the group because yeah. that's exactly where all the um, outgoing folks 
dominate and all the introverts are able to hide. (laughs) (laughs) So it needs to be that balance. Yeah. And in terms of outcomes, so if you took a traditional healthcare setting where people go to the doctor every three to six months, say for their diabetes or their high blood pressure versus a group setting or even using the group as an adjunct to their traditional do you see difference in outcomes in how people do in terms of managing and even reversing their disease? Yeah, so I don't think there's any doubt that in terms of behavior change, uh, the group process has been documented to be the most effective way to go. Uh, and of course, the shining star we all point to is the Diabetes Prevention Program, which, you know, without getting too much in the weeds, is a group process program that. Um, has been shown to be successful at actually preventing by 60% people who are at high risk of diabetes to going on and and getting diabetes. So, um, you know, I don't think, the data are real clear that when implemented in a very uh, intensive sort of way, the group process is the best way to go. Um, I'm not saying that we have any outcome data that it has the kind of sterling results that you saw you'd see in something like the diabetes prevention program because you know to be quite honest the intensity with which we're able to deliver this is much more limited than one of those kind of programs but we were involved in a project where we um um, we're actually funded to look at trying to refer patients to the diabetes prevention program out of our um out of our clinic and again it's a people who at least were showing up to the clinic, um, but uh, so they were motivated to begin with, and basically everyone we were able to contact and were um, told them about the diabetes program in a systematic way went on and went and tried to enroll in one of those classes. So I think the way to think about it is we had sort of set the stage for them to go on to something more intensive, whereas if you would introduce that very intensive program as the first step, it, pro- it may have been a little bit more intimidating yeah. for folks. And with the time we have left, sure. you know, for our listeners who you know, may not have access to a lifestyle clinic and, and certainly probably don't have access to a diabetes prevention program, let me, let me first add that the number you just threw out, that 60% prevention of developing diabetes going through that diabetes prevention program, is far more effective than any pill or medication <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. you or I could ever prescribe. So the, the power behind the types of interventions that you're describing, I think, is tremendous. But for our listeners who don't have access to the formal diabetes prevention program um, nor a lifestyle clinic, what are the specific things in these programs that people can do today in their lives, in their own homes, that can take them in this preventive direction? Yeah, so I mean, the, the real uh, very simple message is go for a walk. <laughs> try to walk about 150 minutes a week, <laughs> two and a half hours. 150 minutes sounds like a lot, but two and a half hours, if you break it up, it's five 30-minute walks in a week. Um, uh, really try to focus on eating um, foods that don't come out of a box or a bag, but are actually whole foods and fresh as possible. Uh, frozen, you know, is second best. Uh, prepare your own food. Uh, and um, sort of try to reconnect socially and emotionally with the people around you. Uh, however, you know, 
you can do that and then think about um, making sure and, and nurturing your relationships with the people in your lives you care about because those are the three major broad components of that program that they work I very hard it. with it's people. It's a multi-million to dollar program oh, rolled out at the CDC. <laughs> <laughs> and the message is just walk, eat healthy, and right. hang out with your family. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the simplicity is right. beautiful. Right. You know, yeah. on one end, you can kind of think it's oversimplified. But on the other end, there's beauty in the simplicity because we can all do this. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we. I think you know, we can. I mean, there are barriers, and again, if if our lives, you know, some some people have more control over their lives than others, which you know, I don't want to go totally three hundred and sixty degrees, but we're kind of back to where we started. Is that, that then the big barriers to people, given that some of these activities are actually so simple, are what are the things in their lives that are helping them or hindering them from being able to do those simple things? And from a, you know, from a public health standpoint, how can we facilitate those kind of settings so that people opt for the easy decision and that decision happens to be healthy? Yeah, just uh, have a sidewalk and exactly don't, things don't like fear, sidewalks. <laughs> don't fear getting hit by right. a car exactly. or looked at like there's something wrong with you if you're walking in your neighborhood. Exactly. <laughs> um, are there any messages or things you want to say as parting words to our listeners? Nothing other than, you know, start today, tomorrow, set a date as soon as you can and pick something, whether it's eating an extra banana a day or going for a 15 to 30 minute walk. Uh, but get started on that journey to towards being healthier. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time and for all the tremendous work you do in public health and prevention to try and get us all to be healthier. Thank you for having me. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.